0: Although at the surface, Jane Austen and her romantic novel style don't altogether equate with venereal disease, one must remember that in the late 18th century, one in five Londoners had syphilis by the age of 35 years. More recently, in fact, literary scholars have uncovered references to syphilis in sense and sensibility. This is Mail, and I am your host, Bindana Chubabai. Today, my guest is Dr. Dinasha Reddy. Danasha is an infectious diseases physician at the Krishani Tharagwanath Academic Hospital, and she's also a lecturer in the Department of Infectious Diseases at Fitz University. Danasha and I will not be delving into the literary complexities which allude to syphilis in Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility, but we will discuss what makes sense and what is sensible practice in the diagnosis and management of syphilis in our current reality, which is the year 2022. Tanasha, thanks so much for joining me today on Microbe Mail and it's so great to have you here. Thanks for
1: having me, Vin, looking forward to
0: it. So our quick reminder is that you should try and sign up to our newsletter on the Microbe Mail website as we send out email reminders of new episode releases and our infographics and storyboards are released also through email. You can follow us on social media, and remember to share Micromail with friends, co-workers, and colleagues. All of the v- links are available in the episode show notes. So, Dinasha, shall we try and make some sense of syphilis diagnosis and management? Let's do it. Awesome. So, starting off, Dinasha, what do you think syphilis really looks like in the year 2022? As in, who's our typical patient population? And are we seeing increases or decreases in infection
1: rates? So contrary to popular belief, both adult and neonatal syphilis rates are on the increase in South Africa, according to NICD STI statistics from 2021. Um, Africa, in fact, has the highest incidence of syphilis globally. And as with most other STIs that we see, our typical population remains young adults who are often HIV co-infected.
0: Okay, so my first sense question is then, does it make sense that rates are increasing? And if it does make sense, then can you give us a reason why this might be happening?
1: Um, So it's unclear why this is the case. Uh, given the relative sensitivity of the organism to penicillin. Mm. A few proposed theories are global shortages of penicillin, um, which has really impacted us in South Africa.
0: Um,
1: And in the US, the increase in cases in MSM and heterosexual females, which are thought to be related to risk compensation behavior. So, for example, the availability of HIV PrEP, And may lead to a decline in condom use. Uh, There are also concurrent high-risk behaviors that take place like drug use. Um, Rises in congenital syphilis are probably related to a combination of pregnant women booking late Mm -hmm. and not being screened for syphilis early on as well as global shortages of benzathine penicillin G which is the WHO recommended treatment for syphilis in pregnancy So shortages of BPG have had catastrophic consequences in terms of neonatal syphilis prevention or lack thereof.
0: Okay, I didn't know some of these things, but you're right. Absolutely, when it comes to HIV preventability, um, I think perhaps patients are not looking at the fact that they should be reducing other sexually transmitted infections as well. Mm. So that's a good Mm. point. Um, So then what would be a sensible way to approach a patient with suspected syphilis? Um, Yeah, and and which patients need specific diagnostic procedures performed on them?
1: So firstly, um, one needs to maintain a high index of suspicion. Syphilis is the great mimica it can present in a Mm. wide range of clinical presentations or sometimes without any clinical signs at all. So just to recap how we stage patients with syphilis, um, in terms of primary syphilis, the usual presentation is a chancre, which is a shallow, typically painless ulcer uh, on genitalia, could be single or multiple. Um, And this usually represents early infection and has an incubation period of about three weeks. Um, This incubation period can range from three to 90 days depending on the inoculum of organisms introduced during infection. Uh, Secondary syphilis usually presents clinically as a maculopapular rash involving the palms and soles as well. Um, Patients can have punched out painless ulcers in the mouth, uh, as well as a nonspecific febrile illness. Uh, Moving on, early latent syphilis is usually asymptomatic and can present within the first two years of the chancre, which is primary infection. Um, so the WHO uses two years as the as the cutoff mm-hmm. for diagnosing early latent, and CDC uses the first year. Uh, mm-hmm. And then lastly, mm-hmm. tertiary syphilis usually occurs 20 to 30 years following primary infection and can present with syphilitic aortitis, syphilitic gamata, or advanced neurological diseases such as Tabes dorsalis or general paresis of the insane. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, with the use of more effective treatment, we see less tertiary syphilis these days. Um, And importantly, neurosyphilis can present at any stage of syphilis and should always be considered in patients who test positive for syphilis and have any neurological deficit, including delirium or meningitis.
0: So that that differentiation between the WHO and the CDC's definition for early latent syphilis can be quite confusing for a clinician. Um, Do we know if there's a reason for the difference between them?
1: I've tried to look it up, and I honestly can't find a good reason for differentiating. It it does lead to a lot of confusion. Yeah. South African clinicians, uh, and especially you know the STI center at the NICD, mm-hmm. we tend to use or follow the WHO criteria. Okay. so we would define early latent syphilis as presenting within the first two years of a shankar.
0: Okay, well that's helpful then. That's just you say You'd rather <laughs> go with the WHO. <laughs> and I wonder yeah. why they haven't changed that general paresis of the insane when you think about, you know, kind of being um. Politically correct in the terminology that we use, I'm surprised that we still yep. have that, that term.
1: <laughs> I think syphilis is interesting in that way, though, because it is historically politically incorrect. <laughs> like exactly, almost it's everything about the disease.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so so that's a lot of um, that staging from a clinical perspective, and that's obviously quite helpful to know. You know, from a clinical perspective, where the patient is presenting. But then we've got to also talk about diagnostic tests. And there's a number of diagnostic tests available for syphilis. And I think it sometimes gets quite confusing for clinicians um, and also gets even more confusing depending on what is offered by the local laboratory group. So what laboratory diagnostic approach would you say makes sense? So
1: we use a syndromic approach to treat STIs and and that includes genital ulcer disease in South Africa. Um, so patients with primary syphilis um, so those presenting with a shanker would usually be treated before any investigation results actually come back. Um, in terms of investigations through the laboratory our primary, primary testing modalities are serological tests and our testing algorithm starts off with a highly sensitive uh, tryponemal test, such as TPAB or the tryponema pallidum antibody test. Right. And this confirms exposure to syphilis, um, either previous or current. And then if the TPAB is positive, a second step using a non trypanemal test, such as RPR or rapid plasma reagent is done. Uh, and this is done to evaluate disease activity um is there anything you want to add, Finn, in terms of serological testing before I
0: No, continue? so yeah, I agree with you. It's kind of it's become a two-step algorithm. Um, and this is different from what it used to be. Um I can't remember exactly when we switched over, but it's 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 certainly more than five years ago that we switched to this reverse algorithm where mm-hmm. previously we would start off with the RPR as a non-trip test. And then confirm with a treponemal specific test. But it's actually been found that if you start with a treponemal specific test, it's a better scoop up test, as in it's more mm. sensitive. So you can actually screen more patients positive and then use the non treponemal tests or the RPR as a confirmatory test of, of active syphilis.
1: Great. Yeah. So um, it's important to remember there are many causes of a false positive. RPR. uh, And these include pregnancy, infective endocarditis, connective tissue diseases like SLE and rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. Um, There are also causes of a false negative RPR. um, These include early syphilis and the prozone effect.
0: Yeah. Which I think a microbiologist is best placed (laughs) to explain. (laughs) I was going to ask you, do you feel confident enough to talk about the Prozone effect or should I take this one on for you?
1: (laughs) Happy for you to go.
0: (laughs) So the Prozone effect is actually, it's a false negative test, as you say, Danasha, and that's when there is too much antibody for the antigen in the reagent. So, in fact, they start clumping together instead of causing the antigen-antibody reaction and seeing the clumping reaction on the test itself. So the way that the laboratory deals with this is that it will dilute the specimen so that it dilutes the amount of antibody in the patient specimen so that you get the antigen antibody reaction happening as it should be. So if you have a negative um, RPI test and you have a very high suspicion in that patient, check with your microbiology laboratory if they actually diluted and retested the specimen for the prosome effect. Great. Thanks, mum.
1: <laughs> okay, and then just to conclude in terms of testing, mm-hmm. uh, neurosyphilis mm-hmm. should be considered in any patient with confirmed syphilis with neurological signs and symptoms. Um, in addition, have a low threshold for performing a lumbar puncture in HIV-positive patients with syphilis who have high RPR tita, so more than mm-hmm. 1 in 32, or a CD4 count of under 350, um, neurosyphilis can be tricky to diagnose. Look for active CSF. Mm-hmm. So, by this I mean a pleocytosis with lymphocyte predominance and raised protein, um, as well as a positive VDRL or FTA if available. Um, and if you're uncertain as a clinician, rather treat as neurosyphilis.
0: Mm. And just to add again that the the VDRL or the FTA test is not routinely offered. By, by most laboratories, I would think, on a CSF specimen. So if you're suspecting neurosyphilis, you have to specifically request the test on, the, on that specimen um, so that your laboratory can perform that in addition. Oh, so, excellent. yeah. So Dinasha we know that treating syphilis has been getting people up in arms of late, um, and I think quite sensibly so. Um, can you maybe go into why that might be happening?
1: Sure. So, um, penicillin shortage globally has really been a major issue. Uh, the global supply issues with benzathine penicillin G, uh, have happened as a result of market failure and specifically supply demand problems. Um, there's been less incentive for pharmaceutical companies to manufacture penicillin, mm. and um, with those that have been doing so, there is a problem with underproduction and also quality issues. So this represents a huge global health issue and the WHO along with other philanthropic organizations have been working hard to try to correct this by engaging with pharmaceutical companies um, to increase a stable and safe supply of penicillin. Yeah, but it is ongoing and hopefully um, a solution is imminent.
0: I hope so, because it's quite sad. We're either complaining that a drug is too cheap to manufacture or too expensive for us to access. Um, yeah, it's yeah. So, on yeah. that note, I mean, it, as you said, penicillin is such a cheap and should be an easily accessible drug to treat penicillin. But uh, do you remember how uh, syphilis was treated in the time of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility Denasha? So, I recall.
1: Mercury being mm. a significant uh, <laughs> backbone of treatment. And uh, I read a bit about arsenic and bismuth as well. Oh <laughs> <laughs> the,
0: the poisonous trio.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, Penicillin uh, is definitely a better option than all of those.
0: Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah, I also read something about uh, sweat darts being quite a common remedy at the time because it was believed that sweating purged the body of these poisons. Um, so interesting that they use the term poison for syphilis, but they actually gave patients real poisons. Um, and I believe a lot of patients actually died from the mercury ointment treatments. Not surprising. Oh, gosh. Shame. Ah mm. oh, yes. We've come yes. a long way. We yeah, have come a long way, thankfully. So then, obviously... Um, we are talking about penicillin and availability, etc. The next obvious question then is what would be a sensible way to treat syphilis, considering that penicillin might not always be available or readily available?
1: Sure. So um, just in terms of standard treatment for syphilis, uh, mm-hmm. standard treatment for early syphilis, and that would include primary syphilis, secondary syphilis, and early latent syphilis, uh, is benzathine penicillin, 2.4 million units intramuscularly as a stat dose mm-hmm. um, and three weekly BPG for late latent syphilis and tertiary syphilis. Neurosyphilis implies infection in a sanctuary site mm-hmm. and therefore treatment is longer and more intensive using penicillin G, 3 million units intravenously, four hourly for 10 to 14 days, or Keftriaxone two grams IV daily for 10 to 14 days. So um, interestingly, recent observational studies for neurosyphilis have shown that Keftriaxone is non-inferior to penicillin G, although Pen-G is still preferred as there's less risk of relapse. Um, In pregnancy, if penicillin is not available, uh, South African clinicians can use amoxicillin and probenicid for 28 days, as an alternative, although this is not ideal. Um, And in patients with penicillin allergy, especially in pregnancy, clinicians can attempt desensitization. Um, In non-pregnant patients with penicillin allergy, uh, doxycycline can be used as an alternative. Um, In South Africa, we've seen emerging macrolide resistance, and Mm -hmm. so stromycin is actually not recommended as an alternative drug. Yeah, just to summarize, if penicillin is available, that should be our first prize always. Mm -hmm. Um, If not, doxycycline for two to four weeks in non-pregnant adults and in pregnant women, moxicillin plus probenicid for 28 days. And this is according to standard treatment guidelines in South Africa, taking into account recent shortages of penicillin. Um, it's important to follow up patients after treatment to monitor their response and also evaluate the need for retreatment. So what we should be doing is a serum RPR titer at six months um, and we should see a four fourfold decline mm-hmm. or normalization, um, uh, taking into account that patients may be serofast, fast, which is something we can chat about. Mm. Um, and if we're seeing patients with neurosyphilis, our follow-up should be to measure serum RPR um, at six months as well, or to repeat CSF uh by doing the lumbar puncture at three and six months to, to demonstrate resolution of
0: pleocytosis. So so Danasha, you mentioned serofast states. what, what exactly is that? So um,
1: maybe to give you a broad view of it, mm-hmm. without treatment of syphilis, um, mm. RPR titers peak at one to two years after infection and remain positive, even in late disease, but usually at a low teeter. After treatment, teeters generally decline and in most immunocompetent I- individuals, um, these would become non-reactive within six months. Up to 20% of individuals infected with syphilis show persistently reactive Although low titer, uh, non treponemal test results, even after treatment. Okay. So these patients are labeled as having a serophast status. Um, it's possibly related to a less robust pro-inflammatory immune response and is observed more commonly um, after treatment for late latent than for early syphilis.
0: Okay. So then uh, the next obvious question is, if you get a seropositive patient, what do you do? So there,
1: there's no evidence to suggest that patients with persistently low positive titers should be retreated if there is evidence, you know, good documentation of them being treated the first time around and, um, you know, if they're symptom free. So what we what we often do in clinical practice is we would observe these patients quite closely, mm-hmm. and we would monitor the RPR titers six monthly, just to make sure that they remain at that low level and don't rise, okay. um, and also that the patients don't develop
0: symptoms. And your experience so. generally, <laughs> and then your experience generally, Danasha, is for HIV positive patients or negative, or would you not treat them differently? So,
1: I suppose we would, you know, we would definitely be a lot more cautious in terms of monitoring for symptoms in patients with HIV. Mm-hmm. But um, as far as I know, there is no evidence for retreatment in either case. Okay. If, uh, if the patient is HIV positive or negative.
0: Okay. All right. Got you. And then your other point about. Um repeating the RPR and potentially a CSF for the neurosyphilis patients um, is a good point. So remembering that in a patient with neurosyphilis, you don't only focus on confirming the diagnosis on the CSF specimen, but you do also need the serum specimen um, for monitoring purposes. So you do need that proven Mm. um, positive RPR. On blood as well so good to also hear that there's there's evidence now to suggest that the generation keplosporins are efficacious as efficacious as penicillin um that's helpful
1: yeah um still just observational studies but you know I, th- I think it is useful to know that we have an alternative
0: absolutely yeah um and then danasha on on the show we try and address issues that might be specific to children or any gender-specific differences. Um, So is there anything related to syphilis that we need to make sense of? Sure. So
1: congenital syphilis is unfortunately still on the increase. Um, And in fact, syphilis is one of the main infective causes of stillbirth, Mm. preterm labor, prematurity, and neonatal deaths. Um in South Africa there's a higher incidence of syphilis in men compared to women, according to the oh. NICD 2021 data. Interesting. Um, yeah, and, and unfortunately there isn't more uh to that in terms of you know possible underlying reasons why mm. there's a difference there.
0: And and I wonder also whether that increase in congenital syphilis also goes back to that same issue of the penicillin shortage. Um you know, penicillin just isn't available, so these patients get potentially diagnosed with syphilis and go untreated, um, which would be, you know, if that's the reason, that's, that's very sad and worrying. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I think,
1: I think it's, 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 it would be quite difficult to sort of pin it down as the reason for an mm-hmm. increase. Mm-hmm. but I think it's certainly probably contributing to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think late bookings probably another issue yeah and it's you know surveillance looking at pickups of uh women with syphilis in pregnancy have shown that most women actually only book during their third trimester Mm -hmm. which is already you know quite late in terms of intervening and treating for syphilis
0: yeah that's true yeah so that's something that definitely needs to shift and and change as well Mm -hmm. So, Janasha, when at the end of an episode, we always have a little spotlight feature. And today's spotlight feature is another mini-microbe message. So, I've got a little cute little kitty for you to listen to, I can listen to this message. Sure. <laughs> Hello, my name is Drea, and I am six years old, and I live in Johannesburg, and last week, I had a tummy bug. My mom gave me probiotics to make me feel better. Probiotics are healthy germs that keep the bad germs away. Probiotics made me feel all better. Thanks, magic microbes. That was very cute. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. And clever as well. Kids these days already know about probiotics, which is a good sign. So, Dinesha, can you summarize for our listeners how to approach a patient with suspected syphilis with both sense and sensibility? Sure,
1: Evan. So I would say have a high index of suspicion, especially in pregnant women and in HIV-infected people. Always try to access penicillin for treatment whenever possible. Uh, Liaise with your pharmacy who can assist with motivation for the drug. Um, It should be available at most hospitals, but you will likely have to fill out a Section Twenty-One motivation, Mm -hmm. Um, and this is especially important in pregnant women.
0: Mm. Yeah, I hear you. I think a lot of people get scared off by that by that Section Twenty-One motivation, but it's in the patient's best interest that they get treated for syphilis. So go go out there and do the paperwork for your patient. Absolutely. Um, Mm. Nasha, thanks so much for joining me on Microbe Mail. And maybe next time we can move on to a more contemporary novelist like maybe Stephen King or JK Rowling or, or someone else of your choice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a bit worried about the Stephen King episode of Microbe Mail then. I'd be keen on I'd be keen on JK Rowling.
0: Yeah, we can <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I think we can think think of something magical or Harry Potter related, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks. Listeners, thanks so much. And we'd love to have any feedback by email or on social media. Remember to share this episode with anyone who may benefit from the content or even just anyone who likes reading novels. Until next time, that's it from me, Ben, your micro-messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.